Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan get back to their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the birth of hip-hop in the Bronx and the Holy Trinity, DJ Cool Hurt, Grandmaster Flash, and Africa Bambata. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say, techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Ryan Harkness, and we're continuing our history of the DJ based on the book, the masterpiece, the classic, Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And I'm lauding the book because it is, I think, just an excellent, excellent piece of musical history, but we're walking into one of the book's weaker spots, and it's... The hip-hop episode. This is actually the hip-hop roots episode. There'll be another episode next week um, on their hip-hop chapter. Actually, we're going to do an extra episode, uh, or the way this is going to be played, you'll already have heard our first episode on the stuff they missed, which was the f- pre-hip-hop straight black DJs of New York. There's a whole school. There's a really good documentary, uh, Hip-Hop's Founding Fathers, that is about that and and if you're listening you heard that before but it's it's something we're looking forward to so the miracle of editing anyhow yeah, for a uh, for a book that that goes into such detail about you know small scenes like uh, northern soul or you know high energy uh there was there was a lot of, of tea spilt on high energy and then you get to hip-hop roots it roots and it's like you know 15 pages and uh you know they, they just basically cover the basics Absolutely. And and I understand why, because hip hop goes off to be its own thing that's had lots of books written about it. Even when they first wrote their book in the 90s, there were already some major books by Nelson George and others about hip hop. And they're really carving out a different thing, which is lauding the DJ, rehabbing disco and explaining the history that goes from disco to house to techno to balearic to acid house to drum and bass, et cetera, et cetera. But 
they're branches on the same tree. And you have to include hip hop if you're going to include, if you're telling the story of the DJ, because obviously the DJ is the instrumentalist of hip hop and it's become this massive genre. And even by the 90s, it had become the dominant pop genre, which I think zero people would have seen coming in 1974. Even if you were down in the Bronx listening to DJ Cool Herc, I don't think anyone could have envisioned what have come from this. So I understand why hip hop is a secondary thing in this book, but there's still a couple things um, that they could have done differently. Like I said, covering the straight black DJs on the disco scene, people like DJ Hollywood, King Charlie in Queens, New Sounds out in Queens. I mean, there's a ton of these guys and they do talk about some of these guys. They talk about um, Pete DJ Jones and they talk about Grandmaster Flowers who are both direct antecedents of the, three kings of hip-hop that we're going to be talking about in this episode. But let's get back to the book and discuss how they start this chapter. They, they focus in on a club, which is very fitting because that's kind of their the focus of the book. They talk about Sal, Sal Abitello's, and apologies if I mispronounced the name, his club, a Disco Fever in the Bronx, which in some lights was just a disco club. Like two nights of the week, they'd have Eddie Chiba playing one night a week. They had DJ Hollywood on Wednesdays. And these are straight up disco DJs, although they were rapping on the mic in a way that directly influences Melly Mel and is probably more influential on the rap part of hip hop than than anybody, really. Uh, direct antecedents of rapping. But as this book shows or argues, Hip-hop is not necessarily rapping. Rapping is kind of an add-on to hip-hop. And as we've seen with artists like Outkast and The Roots and The Fugees and so many others, you can sing over hip-hop and still be hip-hop. I mean, it goes back to New Jack Swing with Belle Biv DeVoe and everything else. But anyway, they started Disco Fever and, and with a quote that from, from the owner, Sal, the biggest neighborhood club in the world. Copacabana was in Manhattan. Studio 54 was in Manhattan. They had all the glamour and all the press. We just had that music, that sound, and it was ours. Because on the nights when DJ Hollywood and Eddie Chiba weren't playing, they had Cool Herc with DJ with MC Clark Kent one night a week. They had Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five one night a week. They had Lovebug Starsky one night a week. So, And they had Junebug, their house disco. disco house DJ um, behind the boards on Saturday nights every week. So, I mean, imagine that lineup. My God, could you imagine like being able to go back in time and just drop in on that club? Well, I mean, the book makes it sound kind of terrifying because they literally say that, you know, gunshots would ring out. Everybody would spill out into the, the parking lot and they'd wait, you know, 20 minutes. Oh, can we go back in? OK, back in more gunshots. And it's like, oh, like the Bronx was a scary place. Uh, listening to, uh, you know, doing some research, listening to some of your old shows with Eugene S. Robinson and how he would talk about how you just, you know, didn't go into the Bronx because if you weren't if you were unaffiliated, you could really have a bad time. So, I, you know, it's it sounds great, but it also sounds scary. <laughs> it's a very good point. And, and that's one thing that, you know, every history of hip hop zeroes in on was just how dire the conditions were in the Bronx, particularly the South Bronx in the early 70s. And the Bronx is the only one of the five boroughs that's on the U.S. mainland. It's not on the island of Manhattan. It's not on Long Island. It's not on Staten Island. It's on the continent. It was originally a pretty shishi suburb um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, you know, a lot of immigrant types would move to Brooklyn when they made, crawled their way out of the tenements after arriving at Ellis Island. 
whereas the Bronx was a place for more established families. Like instead of the Eastern European Jews going over there, it was the German Jews who'd been in America 50 years longer or prosperous Irish families or um, English-German families that moved out to the Bronx. And it was this prosperous middle-class suburb until Robert Morris builds these giant freeways that cut it in half and bisect it in multiple directions. And then there's just this perfect storm of of terrible circumstances you know you get white flight in the 50s and 60s you get riots uh, during the civil rights era you get deliberate systematic insurance arson where landlords were just burned down buildings because they could make more money off that than renting it out and maintaining it and it's you know I, as they say in the book quote it hadn't been a fashionable address for 60 years it was carved up by freeways burnt by riots and insurance arson rinsed in floods of heroin and by the mid-70s, it looked blitzed. Everybody who could had moved out. In statistics, it was third world. But for half a decade, it hid some of the planet's most exciting and revolutionary music. And that, to me, is just – that's what this is all about. This is the inspiring tale of people who had nothing, who had been ruined, who had been abandoned, who had been systematically oppressed for centuries – and who'd even been deprived of musical education. Like if you look at the history of jazz, I did an episode about you know jazz in, in Kansas City in the 20s and 30s. I'm going to do some on the New Orleans, et cetera. Jazz was built on this wonderful public education system that was built in this country and even extended to African-American kids in a time of separate but unequal segregated schools. But kids learned how to read music. They learned how to play music. They were given instruments. They, they you know, and that was all taken away in the 50s and 60s. So by the time you get to the 70s, you have kids who don't have any instruments, who don't have musical educations. And they still find ways to make music. And that's kind of the story of this chapter. Any thoughts on the big sociological picture? Um, I'm not uh, I don't feel like super comfortable weighing in on much of it because it's so far outside of my wheelhouse. But it's it's fascinating to see something grow up uh, based around pretty much like the breakbeat, the breakbeat. You know, to me, it's always a breakbeat sample. Obviously, this is pre sampler. So these guys went to such lengths. Uh, to to pull that breakbeat out of you know out of a track and play it over and over again, it takes so much skill to do that. And uh, I, I find that you know uh, necessity is the uh, is the mother of all innovation. And, and these guys were 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 really innovating. Absolutely, and that's where we get down to it. And this book focuses on the three founding fathers of hip hop, and that's DJ Cool Herc. Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bambata. And these are all three guys who were very young in the 70s who were DJs in the Bronx um, playing and spinning. And certain technical innovations they, they made make them distinct from anything that came before. Um, there are, there's like I mentioned, there's a whole documentary and, and, and previous black DJs who are playing disco, who are playing funk, who are rapping on the microphone, who are building these sound systems. Some of whom uh, like King Charles even came from Jamaica. But what Cool Herc did that made it unique was he focused in on the breaks. He noticed that there were certain parts of records that when he played them, people went crazy. And they tended to be the parts when everything else dropped out and it would just be the drums, sometimes just the drum and bass. And there was a crew of kids, B-boys, who would hang around, they'd be wallflowers standing against the wall and what we now know is the b-boy stance, their arms across the chest, 
and they're watching all these couples do the hustle in their fancy clothes and, you know, older dudes with jobs in their 20s or maybe not jobs in the Bronx, but, you know, people who can afford to dress up and, and who can dance with women. And these young dudes who are not in that position are waiting to show out. And they would, when the drum break happened, they would jump out there and they would break dance. And so let's hear a little bit of the pre-hip-hop music. This is a record from Pigmeat Markham, who's a dude that goes all the way back to the minstrel times. This is a black guy who actually performed in blackface for the first 15 or 20 years of his career until he was pressured not to do it in the 40s. He held on, came back, learned how to perform without the crutch of the face makeup, and put out a bunch of comedy records in the 60s that to my ear sound like hip hop. And this is Pig, Pig Meat Markham doing Here Come the Judge in 1968. Peace, brother. Oh, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Everybody know that he is the judge. And that was Pigmeat Markham's pre-hip-hop rap record, Here Come the Judge. And that's one of the things that's confusing and why it's, it's possible to make a revisionist case that so many of these DJs, like DJ Hollywood and others, were the actual progenitors of hip-hop. Because they're in New York, they're working the turntables, they're rapping on the mic, and you wonder, why is this not hip-hop? And the reason it's not hip-hop is because they weren't focused on the breaks. And DJ Cool Herc was a kid from Jamaica. He's the direct link to reggae. And like reggae, hip, hip-hop is a music that's first and foremost a DJ music that, quote, grew from the innovations and turntable techniques of a few young Bronx DJs who taught themselves phenomenal record manipulation skills in order to adapt the music available to them. Disco hits the day plus old funk to better meet the distinct needs of its dance floors. And so Herc is a kid who's starts out at just house parties and his dad was um i guess a roadie or manager for bands he had a whole equipment set up for bands but he wouldn't let herc use it but herc herc had access to, to turntables and speakers and started playing and he had this thing he called the merry-go-round and, and he took a set of records and just started playing the breaks just the drum beats and then and then he would do another song after that, and it's it's um, as the book said, he noticed that certain dancers exploded with their wildest moves, not only to certain records, but to certain parts of records. And following DJ rule number one, that such energy should be encouraged, these DJs look for ways to play only those particular sections and to repeat them over and over. In the process, creating a completely new kind of live music with not a guitar in sight. Ryan, you want to tell us some of the techniques that they're using? that make hip hop distinct from other musics? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a completely different kind of mixing because traditional beat matching, uh, you know, the, the the tracks are designed minute in, minute out to, to mix in and out. Uh, the elements are stripped away to keep it pretty simple. So it's actually kind of hard to mess up. And then, you know, you have, uh, if, if you're using tracks that aren't designed to DJ, you got to quick cut them a bit more. You can still beat match them and get the tempo the same, but you just kind of quick slide between them, maybe four bars, that's it. But these guys were doing a break mixing. So, uh, and Grandmaster Flash called it quick mix theory. And these guys are just taking a tiny part of the record, the break, and looping it using two turntables, two copies of the record. 
And the breakbeat portion is maybe one to two bars in length. That's 16 to 32 beats, like 20 seconds long, if you're lucky. You go through a lot of these classic breakbeat tracks that that everything came from. The, the break is short. It's like if you're skipping through the track to try and find the break, you're probably not going to find it because it's such a small kind of area on the record. So a lot of the disco guys, they were, you know, putting beats over some of their tracks, playing two tracks at once, but they were, they were cheating in comparison. They had Latin percussion tracks, Latin percussion records that they could just throw over the entire time. And, and nowadays you have drum loop tracks, breakbeat loops and DJ tools. And, and you know, the, the CDJ comes with a loop beat function. So you have no problems. These guys had none of that none none of that so they had to put the needle down at the approximate right spot and then spin the the record into place to find the first beat and uh there's tons of videos of grandmaster flash out there doing this with eight beats like it's not eight bars eight beats it's 30 it's eight seconds if you're lucky so he'd be throwing back and forth between these two records every every couple of seconds and that's a that's a lot of work to keep that break mix going and these guys were these guys just did it and uh you know cool herc you go back there's there's copies of him djing from the early early 80s like 81 and you can hear he's rough compared to say grandmaster flash like his his juggling back and forth doesn't always flow he'll miss a beat or the record will, will skip like the technology that these guys were using back back then was was not good they were belt drive turntables they sucked so i'm just so impressed by the fact that they were they were running these break mixes and, and throwing them back and forth and doing, you know, long sets just full of break mixing because it's it's pretty much uh, uh, before turntablism. It's pretty much like the most labor intensive uh, kind of mixing that you can. And it's kind of obsolete now, technology wise. It's just unless you're learning how to become a turntablist, you don't really need to learn how to break mix. But those who do, it's it is an impressive technology to have at your at, uh, for for you to be able to do absolutely and and like you mentioned cool hurt is not a t- turntablist he's the father of hip-hop the father of the breakbeat but he was just dropping a needle by eye um and never really de- never bothered learning flash's techniques and we'll talk about flash and how they developed those techniques in a little while but but herc's contribution was the breakbeat and the thing about those breakbeats is when you hear those drum breaks in context in the context of a funk record or a novelty record or a james brown record or you know whatever it just sounds like normal music you you know you're used to hearing drum breaks even in beatles records there are drum breaks i mean it's it's something that the ear is pretty accustomed to but when you hear nothing but the drum breaks it sounds totally foreign and alien um to people that that are used to a rock and roll or rhythm and blues or disco listening experience so it was already lightning in a bottle even with cool herc just doing needle drops and and being from jamaica he built this massive sound system he called the herculoid and and you know, after his father had seen what he was doing and seen that he was successful at it, he let him use his sound system. So from day one, Herc had a massive sound system. He he moved from parties down into um, the community center in the basement of his apartment on Sedgwick Avenue. And, and that's now a historical monument. It was nearly bulldozed a couple decades ago, but it's now this landmark and people recognize Cool Herc on this date in 1973 as creating hip hop. And it's not quite there yet, but it's distinctly hip hop. It's playing the breaks. It's it's letting the the, the beat boys um, 
pop and lock and and do their spin uh, what you call up rocking which is when you know you drop to your back and you and you're spinning around on the floor this is the kind of stuff those teenage boys who uh were too young frankly and too uncool to go to the disco so they're 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 doing their thing at block parties and rec centers and Pretty quickly, Herc adds a microphone and he adds MCs and, and an echo chamber. And these guys are doing toasting. They're not doing rapping. They're not sounding like DJ Frankie Crocker on the radio. They're not sounding like DJ Hollywood at the clubs. They're sounding closer to the Jamaican, what they call DJs in Jamaica, confusingly, um, the guys who speak on the mic, the toasters. And it's it's a very different thing and unique. And, and Herc is the direct link to reggae he's like all three of the guys van Vada and flash were also of caribbean descent but only herc was there long enough and old enough for that to have become an active influence he he partied in jamaica or rode his bike down to clubs and watched from the outside he knew what those sound systems were doing in the ska days and in the reggae days and he took that to new york and he tried to play some reggae and dub um but it didn't go over with his crowd so he stuck to the funk and everything else. And, and um, let's hear a little bit of DJ Cool Herc. This is a, a video he made later recreating his merry-go-round. This is him mixing some James Brown and Bongo Rocks Apache, which became uh, uh, a key song in hip-hop. So this is DJ Cool Herc doing the merry-go-round. Right there when the break, boom, I had to come with Bongo Rock. Still no, 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 no vocals in it. Then I will go into Baby Yui, you know, the Mexican. So that was DJ Cool Herc doing the merry-go-round. He's mixing James Brown, give it up or turn it loose, the hand clap, stomp your feet part. And he's mixing that with the incredible bongo bands, Apache. And then he would frequently throw in the Mexican by Babe Ruth. And uh, these are songs that have become iconic, that were totally obscure. There's all documentary about the incredible bongo band. And I'd, I'd like to do an episode about it at some point because that record has been sampled so much. It was originally, Apache was a surf rock instrumental by The Shadows, which was the, the big UK surf group in the early 60s before the Beatles, but the bongo band did a total revisionist take on it, and uh, it was a disco record. The the, the, the disco DJs love some bongos, but DJ Cole Herc is the one who made it a hip-hop record as he was creating hip-hop. And, and um, he remembers the list of records he was playing the first night he focused on the breaks. It's, it's the James Brown track, Give It Up or Turn It Loose. Funk is, funky Music is the Thing by the Dynamic Corvettes. If You Want to Get Into Something by the Isley Brothers. And Bra by Simonde. Um, and topped off by Apache. Uh, and it's just incredible to me that they know the exact records. They know the exact date. They know the exact place. This is a pretty well-documented movement, but nobody tape-recorded these shows. So it's this lost development. To me, it's as big a loss as the failure to record the beginnings of bebop and bluegrass in the 1940s. It's just something that's lost to history. Yeah, there was stuff going on, you know, in 75, but basically, uh, archivally speaking, it's hard to find anything before 80, 81. Every, you can find like one or two things from like 1979 and it just sounds like it was filmed in a bathtub on the floor above where the music was being played. And that's about it. 
Yeah, it's 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 very much lost, but much discussed. And even when you hear Herc DJing later, and um, it's not what you expect for somebody who's grown up on Grandmaster Flash and and all the great turntablists, you know, Jam Master J, et cetera, et cetera, that whole lineage, DJ Herc is not doing that stuff. He's just dropping a needle and there's going to be botched, you know, mismatched beats, um, train wrecks. And, and that, that's the kind of stuff that really inspired Grandmaster Flash was he was a kid who was hearing these disco DJs like um, Pete DJ Jones, who he actually was an apprentice of. And and he dug what they were doing with the blending and the beat matching. Then he hears Cole Herc doing the breaks, and he's his mind is blown. He wants to do that, but he wants to do it smooth. He wants to do it on the beat the way that uh, Pete DJ Jones does. So he um, develops really this whole lab- laboratory. And D- uh, Grandmaster Flash is one of my favorites. Oh, I want to mention the names. Cool Herc's given name was Clive Campbell. And uh, DJ Grandmaster Flash's given name was Joseph Sadler. And and little Joseph Sadler is one of my favorite people. I mean, this precocious kid in the Bronx, the kind of kid who takes the dishwasher apart to see how it works. I mean, just one of these geeks, electronics whiz. And um, he's very self-consciously a student of these techniques and the methodologies, and he's very self-consciously inventing a whole new practice. Yeah, he was getting into it uh, on, on a on a technical side back then. You still didn't have uh, like basically the only DJs who had uh, the option like to be able to cue stuff in their headphones were were working in really big clubs. These were custom mixers made by in the know people. So. Uh, you know, Grandmaster Flash had to do it, uh, do it on the cheap. And what he did is he took the RCA cables coming out of the back of the turntable and he would splice them and he would, he would just run another set of cables out of that spliced cable into another amplifier for him to be able to, to queue up on that. So it was a real Frankenstein job to, to get what he wanted to get done because there was just no, no equipment back there. Like he talks about, uh, uh, running around the Bronx and and going into going into New York City and 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 looking at all these electronic stores and 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 fighting with the people who work there to let him touch the turntables and see what the platters are like and see how strong the belt is and so he can find the turntable that he knows that he needs in order to make these mixes sound good because at this point in time we're still uh three or four years before the uh the technic 1200s which are revolutionized djing with direct drive and a big nice pitch shifter back then it was uh there was just garbage and he managed to find uh what was it exactly it was a technics sl23 which came out in 1976 and uh that was a a belt drive so you had like a big rubber belt underneath the uh the platter turning the platter and because belt drive technology sucks so bad technics had to include like a a speed adjust on the side of the of the table so that the turntable just didn't sound like crap once the belt just started to warp and and play slower or faster now of course that opened up a whole world to djs looking to beat match records but it's funny how that 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 troubleshooting feature ended up becoming such a such a cornerstone of of allowing these guys to actually beat match stuff yeah it's it's crazy and it's classic example of the opportunistic nature of the musical mind i mean you take the tools you have in front of you these are kids who've been denied instruments these are kids who've been denied music lessons and they still find a way and flash like 
I mean, it's just amazing to me. It's something I could never imagine doing myself, but sees a fancy cue system and a fancy club and immediately figures out, not immediately, but I mean, immediately gets the, the concept, goes home, diagrams it out, goes to Radio Shack, figures out what he needs to do with his soldering iron to, to add it to his set. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just amazing. And Grandmaster Flash is just, uh, just one of my favorite music dorks of all time. Like the absolute genius invents multiple techniques that are absolutely fundamental to the future of music. I mean, you know, this is, this is one of those people, if we lost him, it'd be a completely different planet. Um, And, and yet he's not the guy who invented scratching. It was his apprentice, Grandmaster, uh, Grand Wizard Theodore, who invented scratching. Tell us about that and how it's kind of a natural evolution of the technical limitations. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with because uh, Cool Herc, he basically invented the break mix or like the concept of it. And Grandmaster Flash mastered it and he he called it the quick mix theory and he got real nerdy. As you were saying, he was very deliberate about it. He spent months working on it and telling friends he was working on this new thing that was going to blow people's minds. And he even had a formula, which is like the E equals MC squared of hip hop break DJing, which is. 4BF equals 6CCR equals loop. So that's four bars forward, four musical bars forward, equals six counterclockwise revolutions equals a loop. So every time you have a break that plays through, he figured out you spin that record back six times uh, to, to the mark point on the record, and that will get you exactly where you want to go. And he marked records with a crayon, like a straight line, not just down the label, but like right down the wax, right to the point where the break was so that he could see exactly where it was. And he didn't give a, a damn about the rest of the record. He used to call everything else on, on that record, the whack parts of the record. So he would draw with a crayon and it was just, uh, people would go mad because he was touching the record. He was drawing on the record. It was very uh, taboo. Do not do. And he didn't give a shit. And uh, he went, he went ahead and he did that. And uh, he figured out basically how to, he called it the rotary. Uh, He would spin the record backwards like you would put your finger in an old rotary phone and turn it. And uh, what you got to understand is that once, once you're moving this quickly, trying to break mix, you know, again, like 20 seconds for a break beat, maybe five seconds for just one four bar loop. Uh, once, once you're going this fast, you start to understand why scratching just naturally came out of it because you're getting that pitch, you're getting that scratch sound out of it. And, uh, when, when you're mixing on those old belt drive turntables, you can't just rewind the record to the first beat and hold it there and then let it go at the right time. The belt isn't powerful enough. It just, uh, it takes like half a rotation to speed up to the point. And then you're just, you're just choosing a dryer. It sounds like garbage. So you have to pull the record back and forth. And he calls this the dog paddle. You're moving the record back and forth on the first beat and then you throw the record in. So it comes in at the same speed. And that creates that, that classic wicked, wicked, wicked sound. And he just realized, you know, most DJs, when you're doing that, it doesn't sound good. It's uh, I guarantee nobody was handling records the way this guy was. You don't want to hear anything like that in the mix until he comes out and he starts doing it with such finesse that you're hearing the actual first beat. And so he'll do the first four beats, scratching it back and forth and then just let it go. And all of a sudden the scratch is the mix. And then he just goes, goes like that. And that's, that's the beginning of turntablism and everything kind of grows out of that. 
And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll discuss what happened when Grandmaster Flash debuted his new techniques. And so our young Joseph Sadler has spent months, months, uh, apprenticing to Pete DJ Jones, listening to DJ Cool Herc, practicing at home, developing these techniques, getting over the taboo of touching the records, which he knew was wrong. He knew every DJ on earth had been trained never touch the records. You know, he's he's violating the cardinal rule of DJ, and he's got this whole new system. hasn't got scratching yet, but he's 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 got so much of it. Goes out to the park, makes his debut expects people to dance. He's masterminded this set. These are the breaks people are dancing to. I'm going to put them together seamlessly on the beat. People are going to love this. They're going to dance. Gets out there and people just stand there. Stand there and stare at him. He literally goes home and cries after this because it's just too much for people. And and it takes a couple of years though. He sticks at it, sticks with it, keeps doing it. And eventually people start to figure it out. And really when he adds rappers, uh, the Furious Five comes together when he just puts a mic on the table in front of his, his turntables and invites people to come up and rap. And eventually assembles a band, Cowboy and Melly Mel, and the whole crew of the Furious Five. And by 1976, he's packing the Audubon Ballroom, which is a storied location in Har Harlem, a big ballroom. It's where Malcolm X was speaking when he was murdered. So it's amazing. I mean, in a very short span of time, these people are becoming names like DJ Cool Herc was very quickly a marquee name on the flyers. Like if you rented out a location and you hired Cool Herc and you're going to have a party and you're trying to make your money back, you put Cool Herc's name on the flyers. Now that had been going on with, with Grandmaster Flowers and PTJ Jones and these and DJ Hollywood and these others. The DJ had been a draw before. Or, but Herc and Flash are immediately on that level very quickly. I mean, they're obviously onto something. And then there's a third guy who comes into the picture, Africa Bambata. And in the book, they say that, you know his real name has never been revealed. But since then, scholars and others, and maybe Bambata himself, came out and just told his name's Lance Taylor, and uh, absolutely unique character. He was a gang member. He was in a gang called the Black Spades at a time in the late 60s and early 70s when gang life was all over the Bronx. And this isn't like Crips and Bloods. These are not coke dealers. These are not criminal masterminds. These, these guys are not even – they're not even bothering the thoughts of like the Gambinos and the Genovese family and all the major crime lords. These are just kids fighting over blocks nobody wants. These are just stupid territorial – fights and kind of like a west side uh, story but uh yes. maybe a little bit more violent yes a, a, probably a lot more violent and and young lance taylor's also a very bright kid and he, he wins a unicef essay contest and gets sent to africa for for a trip and you know becomes creates the africa bambata persona he'd seen the movie zulu on tv and, and had been enthralled at the idea of these this black tribe that could actually fight the English, beat the English in battle, and 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 you know they were eventually conquered, but by the English Empire, but really had a good showing. So he he's disillusioned with the spades, the black spades, and the violence. He forms the Zulu Nation as a self conscious thing to create a music and dance based alternative to the violence. And 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 Bambata is important for two reasons. He's not a technical innovator in the way that Grandmaster Flash is. He didn't invent the breakbeat like Cool Herc. 
but he creates this vision of hip hop as a culture. I'd say more than anybody else, he's the architect of hip hop as a distinct culture that includes not just the music, but also the dancing, the art, and the political aspect. He's he's you know one of these um, historically aware people who's who's teaching African Americans the history uh, you know of their civilizations in Africa and and what was lost when they were forced into slavery and and, and dragged across the ocean. And he's also the master of records. He's the guy who makes hip hop an eclectic art form. He had the biggest collection of records, the most Catholic taste. Um, he's got, he's not just playing, he's playing all the funk, he's playing the disco, but he's also playing rock, he's playing jazz, he's making tapes of TV, TV themes and TV commercials, he's playing craft work, the Japanese synth group Yellow Magic Orchestra. Um, like here's, they, they run through some of the list of some of his most famous records it's it's like uh, the rolling stones honky talk women walk this way by aerosmith he's playing the rock lobster by the b-52s dizzy gillespie jazz records um uh, mary mary by the monkeys the sergeant peppers uh lonely hearts club band by the beatles and he loved to mock people who were narrow-minded i mean he'd he'd be playing these beats and, and all this funk and people would be asking what is this and he'd be like you listen to the beatles or you listen to the monkeys and just blowing their minds i mean and, and you know brings billy squire's big beat into the um what's the word the the, the body of work that they draw on fog hat slow ride grand funk railroads inside looking out um you know the munsters theme song from tv it's interesting how somebody who is uh, like so deep into into black identity and and, and pushing for uh, black consciousness in, in the neighborhood that he was completely colorblind when it came to records and beats and uh, you know without without him like uh, the number of innovators back then who who Africa about his name comes up over and over and over he was the guy who played this record that blew my mind and uh, you know he was so far outside of just playing funk and honestly just what 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 you would consider cool and and let me tell you as a dj it's extremely dangerous or difficult uh to to go outside the the stylistic norms of of what's to be expected like i think maybe we saw it in the northern soul scene where they were so far up their own ass that that they ended up dying because they weren't willing to go outside of a very specific niche uh, you know, nothing even new because it wasn't authentic like that. And African Bambata opened up the doors where you've got Beatles and Foghat and the B-52s and, and a whole bunch of really uh, weird, weird stuff. Uh, he was playing psychedelic rock and, and everything. He was he was across the board with all genres of music. And, and I imagine that that must have opened the doors for everyone else. All of a sudden, you've got Grand Wizard Theodore, uh, you know, looking not just at funk records, but, you know, like going through Beatles records and trying to find breaks in, in, in those and taking those. And, you know, without without somebody to bridge that, without somebody to be willing to be able to do that and to have the stones to, to, to stand by it and say, you just listen to the monkeys, uh, that doesn't happen because, uh, yeah, a lot of times these guys trying to innovate. It's like we were talking about with Grandmaster Flash, like at first people don't get it. And if you don't have resilience, uh, there's a, there's a good chance you'll, you'll just get beaten down by, by that closed mindedness. Absolutely. And Babat is one of these kids who was a natural leader. He was a born athlete. Uh, they talk about his hell raising 
you know, he was the kind of kid that was either going to make a lot of trouble or make a lot of good in the world. And, and he chose the latter path. And we're all grateful to that. And not that he's perfect. There's some Me Too allegations and everything. You know, he's not a saint, but he's such an innovator. And I, I love that you make that point that despite his African consciousness, he's wide open to music that's considered white or whatever. And, and to me, that's just that's the way to go. Study your own roots, know who you are, know your people, be proud of where you're coming from and be open to all this other stuff. And that's the key thing. The two elements that flash introduced with the sampling, you know, you can take pieces of any record and reconstruct it and make new music. And then Bambata says, and you can do that with any record. If you can hear it and you can record it, I can put it on acetate. I can have it on my turntable and I can cut it into the mix. And he's so socially powerful. He's so charismatic. He's so cool. He brings the party with him no matter where he goes. He's just one of those kids that always had a pack of kids following him around. If Flash said he, if Bam said he was having a party, boom, there's a party, there's a crowd. So he's got the social cachet and the musical cachet to put this together and drop this stuff and just blow people's minds. And he's also very savvy. He's joining the DJ, the disco DJ pools very early on. I mean, these things have just been formed. And here's this kid from the Bronx. And you kind of keep in mind, the Bronx is the sticks. This is nowhere. This is this ghetto hellhole that nobody in Manhattan wants anything to do with. People in Fire Island are not going out to the Bronx to party in disco. I don't, you know, they do not care how good the music might be. They're not going there. This guy is from nowhere. He's a kid from nowhere. He weasels his way into a disco DJ pool and gets these records. That's why he hears Kraftwerk for the first time in the Yellow Magic Orchestra. And he makes it his own, and we'll talk about that in the next chapter when he finally starts making records, um, what he does. And and um, let's go back. This is kind of out of sync, but, but let's hear an example of the Grandmaster Flash quick mix. And this is DJ Rob Swift teaching a class on DJing. And, and this is, I think, the best example we could find of what the Grandmaster quick, quick mix magic is. DJ Rob Swift teaching a class of aspiring DJs the basics of Grandmaster Flash's technique, and that's the example uh, that he showed him. And to me, it's just just so mind blowing and so awesome that we've got classes on DJing now. That that you know, when I was a kid in the '90s, you had uh, Wynton Marsalis teaching classes at the Lincoln Center on jazz, and it was all very musty and fusty. And I'm not knocking jazz; it was very much the hip hop of its day, the rock and roll of its day. But by this 80s, 90s, it, it had been tamed and commodified and, and institutionalized. And now that same process is happening to hip hop. And it's kind of sad. It's no longer, you know, the wild magic music of the streets. It's now the music of the institutions. But it's a natural process. And it's one you love to see. Um, thoughts on that? Like, what does it have any great DJs started out at a school of DJ, like a school of rock? 
Oh, uh, I mean, you're seeing you're seeing a lot of that now on the Internet. And there's there's a lot of DJ classes kind of going on in different cities. I have a couple of friends who started an academy in, in Montreal and it's it's doing very well. They do it out of a, out of a out of a sound system rental uh, like building. So uh, I, I don't doubt that there's there's people coming out of that. I, I don't even know if they've been taught how to break mix anymore because break mixing is such a, such a relic of its time. It was really, there was, there was, when you look at what these guys were trying to get, uh, you saw the disco guys. And, and this, again, this is where the book starts to get a little bit funky and it's uh, like all the timelines start to overlap. You know, in 1975, there was no way to get this, but by, by the, you know, the beginning of the eighties, all of a sudden you can just take that break beat and you can, you can, press a record with the break beat straight on it and uh, doing doing stuff like that but these guys were doing it all manually and uh, and now i think i mentioned this before there's no reason to learn how to break mix unless it's the first step towards learning how to be a turntablist and that's basically at the top of the djing pyramid of skills you know there's a lot of ego involved in uh, different kind of DJing. And if you're, if you're someone like say David Mancuso, who, who really let the music play out and then did a very, you know, he's still beat matched, but, uh, you know, one track would end and the other one would start. And then you got the guys who are layering the tracks over two tracks going a couple minutes at a time. These are escalating steps of, 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 respect in the dj scene and then break mixing is really high up there and turntablism is top and honestly like you need a school in order to learn turntablism so i can i can break mix uh but i don't have to anymore uh i cannot i cannot scratch at all and that's just that's just uh, i just have two 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 right hands two left hands so yeah and there's an interesting bifurcation that happens where the turntablist goes off in one direction and essentially becomes an instrumentalist. You have people like Terminator X, who is not the producer of Public Enemy. That's that's you know Hank Shockley and the gang that are that are creating the overall sa- all sound of the record. But a key part of the sound of the record is putting mics on DJ on Terminator X and his turntables and listening to him play as if he's the, the lead guitarist or the bass player that comes in to do their part. And so that you've got the turntablist who's this alpha instrumentalist. And, you know, I've got music friends that, that are just super technique nerds, you know, the kind of guy that was into 10 finger tapping and Bella Flex fast banjo playing and that kind of stuff. And when you show somebody like that, and this, to me, in my experience, they were the most resistant demo to hip hop. Oh, that's just playing records. I, anybody can do that. They're just talking over a record. I could do that. They see a documentary like Scratch and see these turntables in effect, and they're like, "Oh my god, wow!" You know, it's like obviously technical. It's obviously music making. I mean, you you hear some of these modern turntablists, and you cannot deny these guys are the virtuosos of their day. So. And that and that's different from the producer side that that's still part of this DJ brand. So we'll we'll keep talking about throughout all this stuff because, you know, when we get into house and techno, people like Frankie Knuckles are going to be DJs who command the crowd, who play a lot of records, but also become producers and make records in the studio that then get thrown into that DJ mix. So. I love these splits and, and, you know, when the tree branches off and turntablism is definitely a distinct branch. I mean, just uh, break mixing. It's in itself. I I understand why when when you're looking at this as hip hop roots and and why they chose to focus on, on this era as, as, as such a, a key point is, 
you know, without the break mix until the DJ showed up and isolated that break beat, you know, you had people in the clubs doing maybe a rap, but this was the first time that you had an isolated beat that, that people could rap over. So these early DJs were digging into records and finding sick breaks and quick mixing them back and forth, giving these guys something to rap over. So once the MC started rapping over them, now you've got that final pillar of hip hop. You had, you know, break beat or uh, you had uh, break dancing and you had, uh, uh, tagging graffiti and, and, and yeah, graffiti tagging. and then the DJing aspect. And then all, once the, once the break mixing happens, then, then you have place for the, for the rapper to come in and really do his thing. Absolutely. And that alliance with the rapper is what is going to make hip hop the pop music of the future in a way that the disco and house and techno side of the, of the branch is not, which is funny because disco becomes the pop music of the day. It dominates seventies music so massively that it triggers this big backlash that sort of retards the progress of that kind of music or not the aesthetic progress, but the popular progress of it. And then in the U S it's not until the 2010s that EDM becomes a massive pop style. Uh, and in the UK, it happens in the late eighties and the nineties. Um, but this alliance between the turntablist and the MC is what leads hip hop into a song based form rather than into extended dance mixes, which opens it up to pop. But it's also, I also want to make it clear. This is not, a bifurcation that entirely entirely leaves our story genres that are going to be central to this book and the other books we're going to talk about in the series like drum and bass like um breakbeat like uh, hip house like big beat like trip hop are all going to be derived from this kind of turntable style and this focus on the breaks so it's these branches are going to interweave. It's just like the way rock and roll split off from jazz and R and B split off from jazz and, 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 and rock and roll splits off from R and B and that they bring back jazz influences and jazz brings back rock influences. So these chains of the disco and the hip hop family trees are going to, they're going to interweave and you get forms like grime in the early 21st century. That is a new form of hip hop using the, the EDM music that was innovated in the nineties. So yeah, fascinating stuff. And I love it, but let's talk about the rappers and the whole um, family tree, because a lot of times when people discuss the history of rap, they also want to talk about, or the history of hip hop. They also want to talk about the history of rap or they conflate the two things. So you see things like the last poets or the speeches of Malcolm X being described as, you know, the grandfathers of hip hop. And in a way that's true, but in another way, it's not true. I mean, the African-American tradition has always put a priority on oral dexterity and, and there's whole books written about the, the, the dozens, which is, you know, this this formalized insult game uh, that's been played in African-American communities since there were African-American communities. And, you know, there's a ton of deep roots to this, but it was a form that had never been formalized. I played the Pigmeat Markham record and that was put on a record, but that was seen as a novelty, you know, and you had DJs like DJ Hollywood. And let's let's hear a little bit of DJ Hollywood. This is DJ Hollywood rapping over Sheik's Good Times at a disco. Everybody, everybody, clap your hands. Now I don't mean to brag or boast. I'm like the hot butter on your morning toast. I'm not a Duracell, I'm an alkaline, so let's have a... Oh, that's right, y'all, and you don't stop. A big boy. Now we want everybody to get somebody. Come on, let's have a little fun out here. I'll give you 40 seconds to find you a fine young lady and bring her to the dance floor. Everybody, come on. 
And that was DJ Hollywood, a man who, in my book, has as much claim to the saying, I'm the father of rap as anybody, um, because his flows, his cadences, those were the big influences on people like Melly Mel of the Furious Five that and, and the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Kaz and so many of the architects of what we think of as rapping, uh, which many people conflate with hip hop. It's a part of hip hop, but it's not necessarily hip hop. And as defined in this book, you know, hip hop is about the breaks and the turntablism and, and the looping and that sampling culture. But when you add, when you take this form that you've invented that can absorb anything and make something new out of it, that's massive potential, massive and rhythm. It's based on rhythm, absolute fundamental ingredient of music. You add words to that and you've really got something. And it's interesting that it leaves out harmony, you know, the, the art of putting chords together behind melodies. It doesn't completely leave out melody because if you listen to people like Rakim or Chuck D, they're actually kind of singing a lot of the times. Like if you, you know, they're changing the tone and they're changing the notes, um, but they're, uh, they're not doing it on a bed of chords, which has, you know, been fundamental to Western music. So this is a radical new thing, but let's go. They, they go through the book and they list some of the um, influences on the early rappers. And it says the audience is raised on performers like James Brown, Isaac Hayes, Millie Jackson, Barry White, The Last Poets and Gil Scott Heron, on comedians like Pygmy Markham, Nipsey Russell and Moms Mabley, on radio DJs like Jocko Henderson and Eddie O.J., um, on local disco, disco DJs like DJ Hollywood and Eddie Chiba. And let's not forget Muhammad Ali. And Malcolm X and Cab Calloway and Martin Luther King and DJs like Gary Bird and Frankie Crocker. This stuff was everywhere. It was already a massive part of black culture and pop culture. I mean, you know, everybody heard Muhammad Ali. He was the most famous person on the planet in his era, you know, as big as the Beatles or bigger. And, you know, he's out there rapping on TV all the time. So people knew what rapping was. They just weren't used to thinking of it as music. And when Grandmaster Flash, you know, like we talked about DJ Cole Herc had rappers, he had Clark Kent. Um, and uh, what's the other one? DJ Coke LaRock, I think. Uh, and they're doing kind of a toasting thing where they're just sort of talking into the mic with massive echo in it and, and, and making commentary. And, you know, you'll see Coke LaRock in documentaries and he'll show you he was doing rapping on the beat as well, but it wasn't quite what DJ Hollywood was doing. And another thing we got to bring up is there was a big split. Like DJ Hollywood was reluctant to play at Disco Fever in the Bronx. He did not want to be associated with the hip hop crowd. His crowd was older people with some money who could dress up nice and do the hustle and do some cocaine and get laid and be sophisticated and cool and classy. He was playing records you heard on the radio in a way you could recognize as the records you heard on the radio. So he just thought this hip hop stuff was really declass and 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 young and dumb and didn't want to be associated with it. And the hip hop guys reacted against that too. They wanted to do their break dancing. They wanted to, to hear the break beats. They thought the disco stuff was lame. They liked the old funk. That's another thing. DJ Cool Herc was kind of a self, I don't know how self-conscious he was, but he was definitely a revisionist. He was somebody who was like, yeah, I know these James Brown records ain't hip right now, but have you heard him lately? Like, let's, you know, like he, he consciously brings back the Sly Stone, the James Brown, that kind of hard funk sound that had been subsumed by the Gamble and Huff Philly sound in the disco era. And so uh, there's just so many, so many fascinating threads, but really once to bring rap into it, the potential is unlimited. 
Yeah, really looking forward to getting getting deeper into it. Uh, Grandmaster Flash and everything that he did was was so impressive. And obviously, it takes so much time that he never really got that big into rapping. It's funny how he talks about developing a rap or two that he tried to put out there and it just not catching on and just just deciding out oh, this is this is not let the furious five do it you know <laughs> absolutely and and you know when you got the furious five when you got Melly Mel and you got cowboy and you got the whole crew well yeah let him let him get on the mic and do their thing and 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 this alliance of the dj and the mc uh is what's going to power rap and we'll talk about it next time when we talk about the first rap records and the crazy thing about the first rap records is they have none of this stuff. It's literally just people rapping over a live band, playing a cover of Sheik's good Times. So um, we'll get to that next time. I'm Nate Wilcox for Ryan Harkness and the techno roll. Thank you for joining us and come back next week. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week with special guest Steve Jewin to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at hip-hop's transition to records with the Sugar Hill Gang, Africa Bambata's epic Planet Rock, and how hip-hop morphed from music for dancing and parties into a new form of album and concert music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.